Hi everyone, uh, Dave here. Thanks for coming along to another episode of Legends of the Spire. Great to have you with us. This is the podcast where I speak to the former players and managers of Chesterfield Football Club. Now on the podcast this week, I spoke to Martin Gritton. Martin joined Chesterfield in January 2009. It was kind of a replacement for Jamie Ward, who had just been sold, although he was a very, very different type of forward to Jamie. As a context to that time, it was the last season of Lee Richardson's reign and then the first season of John Sheridan's reign the season after. So he probably admits himself that it was a bit of a casualty of a change of manager and change of style in the team at that time. Um, we had a good chat about the role of the target man forward. I'm six foot five myself, so I've always felt they're kind of my spirit animal in the game. Um, so it was really good to have a chat with Martin about that role in the team and also his really interesting journey in football. He uh, started off a bit like Tom Curtis, being a, a mix of university and also playing. And then he did play a lot of those uh, clubs in the southwest before playing for teams up north like us and Grimsby as well. Um, he still does a bit of commentary now on teams like Torquay and Grimsby, so has a good knowledge of the league we're in now. And uh, yeah, it was really good to get his thoughts uh, just on where the game is at currently uh, and also some good memories about times gone by. As always, we are at Spy Legends on Twitter and Instagram, Legends of the Spire on Facebook as well, so please do get in touch. It's always great to hear from you. So here we are with the latest episode. This is Martin Gritton. kind of interested because I spoke to Tom Curtis who was one of Chesterfield's FA Cup heroes and now works for kind of FA and stuff like that and and he joined Chesterfield when he was at university so he joined Chesterfield as a part-time player and kind of played pretty much a full season for Chesterfield when he was still studying and you kind of not not completely similar in how you did it, but there's kind of elements of that, isn't it? With you starting off kind of going through university route and then signing for Plymouth? Yeah, I, very much so. I think I could have I could have balanced. I was offered the, the contract to stay at uni and play for Plymouth at the same time. The only problem is Portsmouth and Plymouth in people's minds are quite close, but they're really not. You know, it's uh, geographically it would have been quite an undertaking. I didn't own a car at the time. Um, and I just had a look at the pressures on footballers at that level so if you're not in the first team you're training at least once or twice a day um, and you've got reserve matches but then in that in those days you, you take a strike on the bench there's only two subs at the time god it makes me feel really old um, this is only the this, late 90s so it yeah. feels like it's yesterday it's like premier league classic era isn't it the two subs is bonkers well, well we might touch on it in a minute but i joined i, I joined plymouth on trial just after the Battle of Saltergate. So, I mean, I, I went in that dressing room and there was just big characters to me. There were big, strong blokes that were just... Well, after watching that fight, I was like, mm, I'm not sure I want to get into this. But, uh, but it was an interesting time to join Plymouth because Warnock, it was kind of... He just left Mick Jones taking over in his stead. It was, uh, they, just, they were just going down to League Two and I was very much raw, sort of just a non-league striker that was playing, doing well in this kind of lower league... We had an FA Vaz run when I played for this little fishing village in Cornwall. But then when I went and played at uni, I carried on playing well, got in the England uni team, and it kind of gave me a bit of a momentum. So when I went to Plymouth, I had nothing to lose. And um, it's funny you say about uh, Tom just saying, when you come from uni, you've, when you've got two, when you, it basically all your eggs aren't in one basket. So it means that you've got less pressure on you. And I, th- I find that I enjoyed that more because I was like, well, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And How did the other players kind of, 
approach it with you. I bet there was a bit of Mickey taking, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely. I got my, my clothes were regularly stuck up on the ceiling or hung up in the, because I dressed like a student. I probably had the same sort of mentality as a student. I think they were probably uh, happy to have a go at me. But, you know, um, at Plymouth, as with a lot of these teams, a lot of the lads come from either local that played in the reserve team or kind of you were aware of them. So when I played in the county youth levels, so there was a few friendly faces in the dressing room. That's all you need. Um, when you step up to the first team, it becomes a little bit more hostile. But you find the first team players. If you're if you're in in the team, they want you to do well because you know if you play well for the first team, then you know you, you're helping their careers as well as your own. So uh, um, yeah, but it was it was a real uh, a rude awakening when I when I signed that pro contract and then realised right, you know you've got to kind of not just deliver but kind of step up the physical demands, the the mental demands, um, and the first first year or two is a little bit like a honeymoon period and, and you just enjoy it for what it is but, but yeah I think the opportunity for it came to push on and you know when I moved from Plymouth to Torquay that really that really um galvanized it for me was it was it a sports-based degree or was it something completely yeah I did sport and exercise science it was one of the first degrees of its type in, in Portsmouth which was a, a good you know really good uni for it and they've gone on to you know just quite a few good people people that have come through that course but um for me i'd wanted to do physio uh move into that side of things so when um i got an opportunity to well just just to kick start it with sport and exercise science and then you know i knew if i if i could study hard and get good results then maybe go on to that so football became the kind of focal point so um you know and, and because i was playing for england unis i think the uni were you know were pleased to support that but i wouldn't say my studies uh, benefited from it too much Did- did you ever, like with the coaches, say, you know, actually there's a study that says you shouldn't be doing it like <laughs> <laughs> Never. God. I'd, um, do you know what? A lot of those times it's like you, you probably, I felt like a, you cheat the system a little bit because if you haven't gone through the, one of the hardest things a professional football player ever goes through is the youth team process because that's as cutthroat as anything. Because even if you're good enough to come through that process, if the manager doesn't like you, there's not a place here. You know, we had when I went to Grimsby, there was some incredible, there was incredible players in that youth team that just weren't necessarily as big or physical as the way that we were playing as a side. So they never got a chance. And you think in a different setup, you know, uh, from the team that I come out at Torquay, where Leroy Senior had a lot of good ball playing players, and you know, we weren't under the huge pressure that teams are under. Um, we were like, kind of, you know, let's see what happens. And when we got promoted that year, it was almost like. You know, we'd, we against all odds, because it's really hard to sustain that with with lesser budgets. When you know, a lot of teams are looking at you now to either take your players or say, you know, they're a team to beat. So puts a different sort of pressure on it. Did it pretty much straight away when you signed for Plymouth? Then uh, we like right. Actually, now I am going to be a professional footballer. Or was uh, did it take a few years for you to actually think? Oh no, actually, I've got a career. Here. <laughs> well, to be honest, the first contract I signed for Plymouth, I don't think they were paying me. I was, I was going like a non-contract terms. I said, I'd been paying my own way up. I said, I told this one before, but the manager at the time, because I was on trial from uni and I couldn't I couldn't leave uni to do the course and he was a bit put out by it. So I said to Kevin Odges, I rang him. I just rang him up at home, found his number in the phone book and said, oh, do you mind me coming back in on trial? And he was like, well, we're not going to give you any money. Um, you know, and I went back in on pre-season and then kind of proved myself out of, just because a lot of other strikers got injured, got some games, scored some goals. Um, but by that point, negotiation, I wasn't, I didn't really have any skin in the game. So I was like, well, you either play well enough to earn your contract. Um, but 
yeah, I think I managed to get I managed to get my basic wage of I think it was as low as you can get. It was like 150 quid a week. Um, but managed to score four goals in that first month and then score four goals a month. Everyone's like, well, you know, managed to secure a bit more than that for a two-year contract with kind of incentivized, you know, a couple hundred quid uh, appearance, you know, hundred quid a goal, those sort of things. But um, when you're coming out of uni, that sort of money, when you're playing football, I was playing, you know, 50 quid a week down fishing village in Cornwall. We're a good side as well, Port Levin. But um, yeah, you don't think of it anything other than I'm going to enjoy this while it lasts. Because the turnover of players is just enormous at that level, you know, until you establish yourself, which takes a considerable amount of time. Was it was it Port Lethen where you got to the, was it quarterfinal of the FA Trophy, something like that? Yeah, FA Vaz, it was the, uh, the Vaz, but I mean, in Cornwall, that's the one chance you've got to almost get out of the county at the time, because there was a good local football, but you don't have the money to step up the leagues i mean truro have somewhat bucked the trend i mean they had a wealthy benefactor for a long time and they become a bit more self-sufficient but the, just the transport and logistics to say you've got a job i mean you can't be traveling from truro to even Truro to weymouth it was like a long way but truro to wiltshire or dorset or you know even a, when when I, I used to see some fixtures for them like having king's lane in the same lane as them and it's that's you know that's 10 hours on a bus it's horrendous so um Cornwall was a, uh, you know, it was a, it was a long way from everywhere. So Plymouth was the furthest professional club away from everywhere else. So that was, you know, that was a challenge for them as well. I, th- I think you just touched upon like Torquay. So it was Torquay where you uh, you won the won the promotion, didn't you? But then you ended up having to move on from Torquay, kind of because of promotion almost. Yeah. So basically, that team got broken up quite quickly. Davy Graham was one of our, you know, he's a brilliant player. He went to Wigan. Um, I, we brought in Adebayo, I can Fenwally on constant time. We had a kind of different looking forward line and Joker for a play for us at the time and I had the chance to leave and there was not, we just didn't have the money to keep the players. So a lot of players, we went up and they couldn't even offer them the contracted improvement in their wages. They were saying, look, we can't sustain this. So we had to cull the squad, bring in some a lot of lone players. Um, and Leroy was just honest with me when I said to him, look, I've got a chance to go maybe back to League Two, but just to kind of get a a more secure contract, he kind of, you know, I went with his blessing. It was sad because, I, you know, it's sad to break up that Torquay team. But it was all, all, there was an element of me that needed to go, I feel like up north, there was a lot more football to be played. There's someone, many more professional teams in a smaller catchment. Um, and it was a really good lesson in going and proving yourself somewhere else. Because the Southwest, you get caught up in those sort of, oh, it's the same as anywhere, the East, but, you know, Chesterfield and the East Midlands, you see lads going from, you know, basically go through the, the local teams. You go, you know, you play for Mansfield, but you, you can play for, um, you know, any of these Midlands non-league teams or kind of find yourself. And there's some good sides around there, but that you get caught up in that area because everyone knows you. So I thought moving out of that area would help. And it did. And it gave me a really well-rounded experience, if not, you know, maybe too many clubs in, in my career. But that's what happens when you're a target man. Well, it's interesting as well, because I've had a few... Uh, Torquay connections, well, actually South West connections, like Jamie Lowry, who's now at Plymouth, and uh, Aaron Downs, who's obviously Torquay, and Paul Hall, who started at Torquay. Um, That's right. And yeah. kind of you get this, uh, you get this notion that like from the outside, everyone will be like, oh, it must be amazing playing down at Torquay and like being based around there, just because we're in Chesterfield and we can't see the sea. Um, I, suppose, <laughs> I suppose in some ways it's like a opposite uh, to that, like you say, because of 
the just locality and just getting around is a lot tougher, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a really nice club to come. If you've been playing in, in an inner city team, the one thing Leroy Rossini was brilliant at was getting lads that had, you know, maybe not fulfilled the potential at some inner city clubs and speaking to them on a level and saying, giving them the opportunity to come out of that, you know, city, whether it was London or Bristol or Birmingham and say, come down here, you know, free your mind of any other sort of distractions. It's a nice place to live. You know, we're going to spend a lot of time on the team bus, but it's a good way to get to know your teammates. And, you know, and if you're playing in, in the team, because we didn't carry many subs, you know, we carried the squad and the squad had to get you through the season. So you didn't feel like you were missing out down there. You were like, I'm always part of this. So, you know, if you're traveling to Morecambe or your Carlisle or whatever, you still feel like you're part of the match day experience. So that that's a big thing for a footballer. And, and Toki gave us that. Yeah, I suppose it is that uh, get away from the bright city lights, isn't it? And knuckle down for a few years at the coast. Well, I mean, an inch, another connect with you know Jamie Ward because he was down there, and that was you know, I, I kind of look at his career and you know, small for Villa probably. That's probably what their argument was at the time, and you think, well, you know, that that's a perfect example of what a player has to do after being probably the best at his level in that club for years, but just not necessarily fitting a criteria and then going out to a team like Torquay and proving, it, proving everyone wrong. I, whenever anyone mentions Jamie Ward now, I just have Jamie Winter and Peter Levin in my head calling him angry man. <laughs> the banter that used to fly when I first joined between him, um, just just that squad in general, there were so many characters in that dressing room, you know, and um, I was just thinking the way, because him and uh, an unlikely duo, him and Kevin Austin used to have really good, good God rest his soul, used mm. to have brilliant banter. And it was just like the, 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 the unlikely double act of wee Jamie and big Kevin just just <laughs> uh, giving, giving each other stick used to crack me up. <laughs> and am I right in saying that you're kind of more more Celtic than Rangers? That would be correct. Yeah, no. I think I don't think you I don't think you'll find many fans that would be have much of the other club in their system. But again, <laughs> Jamie, Jamie Winter probably was the first man to make me uh, uh, tolerate uh, tolerate that banter in a, a slightly more fun way from a teammate. <laughs> I was going to say, I bet that was the first question, wasn't it, when you arrived in Chesterfield? Yeah, it was. I think, um, uh, and I remembered him from scoring a goal against Celtic when I think he got for Aberdeen. He's got an absolute hammer. I mean, he only had one type of goal in his locker, Jamie, because he could kick it harder than any other man in the football club. He's brilliant. Um, but yeah. Uh, he scored a memorable goal against Celtic, which he celebrated quite uh, vociferously. I remember he shared that with me when he joined, when I joined, I should say. And doesn't talk about it a lot at all. <laughs> well, if you score one like that against your better rivals, then you're allowed to enjoy it. Too right. Yeah, too right. There's a man It's nicely done inside. Fowler's ball over the top, it's useful as well. And here's a big chance for Graham to mark his return from injury with a goal. What a start for Torquay. Seven minutes on the watch and they have taken a shock lead away at the home of the league leaders, Hartlepool United. Clark coming inside him. Now Richardson, good tackle from Canneville. Important tackle. Ball over the top, no flag. Gritton is onside. Martin Gritton goes round the keeper, 2-1 to Torquay United. No offside flag, Gritton sprung the trap, and that is the perfect response from the visitors. Hartlepool on level terms for a matter of seconds. Martin Gritton 
controlled finish, confidently put away. The visitors back in front. We've skipped on a little bit. So we've had like Lincoln, you had a little spell at Mansfield. You actually, you scored quite, what, six in 19 for Mansfield, I think? That's 2007, so only a couple of years before Chesterfield. The worst thing about that is I had six and six. I had six and six and then got stuck in the bench and then kept coming on for the last five, ten minutes. So Billy Dean was there and it was kind of had a couple of knocks and then just couldn't get back in the team. And it made my goal scoring average a little bit um, bizarre after that. But I went back to Lincoln because Lincoln loaned me there and Lincoln had had a cataclysmic sort of, they fell off a cliff. They were like top of the league at Christmas. Then I went on loan, enjoyed it. And we got Mansfield kind of out of the trouble. Unfortunately, Mansfield kind of flipped back into it a bit. But um, it was myself and Barry Conlon. So it's locked. Us two kind of kept kind of crossing over careers as we, as, as we were kind of at that level. But yeah, um, went back to Lincoln, ended up getting drafted back in the Lincoln team for the playoff matches, even though I hadn't been there for six months. So it's a very odd, it's a very odd situation to come back into. Um, but, you know, I think Jamie Forrest and Mark Stallard at the time were just unstoppable for them for half a season. And then, you know, for whatever reason, it just kind of dried up a bit. But, yeah, that was a, that was an interesting one. And yeah, it was nice to play under Billy. I, I, I suppose the rivalry, when I joined Chesterfield, I forgot the rivalry between Mansfield and Chesterfield was quite the way it was. Because, um, uh, yeah, there's so many teams around that area. I was like, oh, I, you know, I don't know how well I'll be received. <laughs> yeah, it's a fierce one. If we just talk for a minute about the target man. Right, so obviously I'm, I grew up kind of watching 90s, noughties football where it was very much like a, a 4-4-2 target man, quick guy alongside. Um, but it always felt like a lot of the time the target man got kind of the wrong end of the stick because you, you're kind of there to, there to create lots of goals uh, because of your height and your presence and you can't hold things up. But then you'd also kind of get criticised if you don't score many. <laughs> <laughs> but you'd be like laying him off for, for the for the little guy to score. It's uh, it's what's it like being the the target man? Uh, it's funny. I think it, if you are lucky enough to play in a team that are creative and you know give you chances, and then you don't score, then take the criticism. If you're not getting chances, I played in a few systems where you know you you built set up to not get beat but you're not going to create much as well and that can be frustrating because you'll only get maybe one one or two chances a game even if that so if the little guy's scoring you can take some credit from it but um but yeah it can be frustrating and it can be frustrating when um you're brought in to do a job that basically you're set up in a team to not get beat or to get them out of the to get them out of the problems that they're in. And then once you get up to a decent point in the table, the managers come in and the first thing to get changed is the strikers if they're not scoring enough. So, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. But, listen, I'd, you know, I'd always argue that if I was lucky enough to be getting on the pitch and playing, I couldn't really have too many complaints. And, you know, the pressure's on you to take that one or two chance, whether it, you know, whether your ratio is great or not. Um, as long as you're on the pitch, you've got a chance. Sometimes you, like, end up as the plan B as well, don't you? They're like the... Or plan C. Throw them on with the last 20 minutes, the last 10 minutes, last five minutes. <laughs> you know. Well, that's the most depressing. If you're sat on a bench and you see there's two other strikers alongside you and you're the target man, you're probably uh, plan D. But yeah, I think, um, yeah, again, uh, another problem to deal with. Good problem to have. As long as you're fit and, uh, and with a chance of playing, you can have too many complaints. Two games were played in League Two on Friday night and they produced 12 goals between them. Six at Chesterfield, where the home side found themselves two down after 25 minutes. To goals from Martin Britton and Lee Bell.
Bell made the most of Kevin Austin's mistake for the second, and Macclesfield were well on the way to a win which would take them above their opponents in the table. Chesterfield have been relying on the goals of Jamie Ward this season, and he got them back in contention before half-time, punishing Sean Hesse's poor back header. But Macclesfield restored their two-goal lead early in the second half, Gritton with his second of the game. Once again, Ward was on hand to give Chesterfield renewed hope with his 15th of the season, beating Hesse before shooting beyond goalkeeper John Brain, another hint perhaps for any scouts watching. But it was another bad night for Chesterfield manager Lee Richardson. The fans vented their frustration and he admitted the defeat was down to his team selection. Gareth Evans tied up the points for Macclesfield and both teams ended with 10 men. So, so Macclesfield. So yes. it was, you I kind of ended up at Chesterfield partly because of a game against Chesterfield for Macclesfield where you scored twice, I think, in that game. And your That's first right. goal was a really good goal as well. Your first goal. Yeah. Um, and you, but you scored for Chesterfield. You scored against Chesterfield when you were at Torquay, I think, as well. Uh, you scored a, scored a few times against Chesterfield, I think. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd done all right. I mean, I suppose you you remember some teams. I'd never remembered Chesterfield being a, an easy team, but a tough guy or a good team. I think that night for Macclesfield, we just had a really good night for ourselves as a team. We were, you know, we were very. Um, what's the word? I suppose inconsistent. Um, but we had a few good players and that night seemed, things seemed to come off for us and they weren't this, I'd say that Chesterfield were probably on a little bit of a bad run but the team certainly were a little bit low on confidence so it was a chance for us to get at them those sort of evening games sometimes can throw up a, an anomaly as well so it was a yeah it was a good night for us got a couple of good goals um, and uh, yeah just put in that bizarre situation where the club then come in for you but I had quite a tough night against me and Rob Page were kicking lumps at each other and then to join the team, and then two weeks later, I have to walk in the dressing room and go up to me, right? All right, Pagey. Uh, perhaps when you know the club had just, I suppose they were do, doing what they can to well to, to to maintain the momentum at the time. But um, but yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was it was an odd one going from one to the other mid-season. Are there, are there those teams whereby you think I always score against these? Because as fans, we talk about it quite a lot. We're we'll like, oh, you always score. I'm, I remember Henderson, who used to be at Rochdale, always used to score against Chesterfield. So you'd always say if we were playing Rochdale, Henderson's going to score, and he would. Yeah. Like, yeah. do you get a notion of that as a player or not? Uh, I think you have teams you want to play against because you, you know, you've got good luck against them, or but there's that sometimes it's a self fulfilling prophecy. If you if you've got good record against someone, you just feel a little bit more confident, a little bit more relaxed going into it. Um, and by the same token, if you've had a tough game on a ground, I never like going to Notts County. I never found that a particularly enjoyable experience. I'm sure you're probably the same as a fan. But um, yeah, tough place to go, and you know, didn't get much change out of them. I'd always play them at the same time. It always was like a like a January or something. The pitch was always like a car park. And you know you'd just be balls bouncing left, right, and centre, just fighting defenders, and um, so I always projected that on whether it's true or not, whether it's that unconscious bias or whatever you think. Um, yeah, I just never enjoyed going there. Whereas other grounds, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I've always enjoyed playing certain teams. Um, you know, and I always like going back to my old clubs because it gave me an extra bit of uh, grist to my mill. Yeah, and like you say, there's then probably that happens just as clubs generally when they play each other. Like we talk about Maidenhead, 
Yeah. Like we've uh, we've played them five times now, not beaten them once. So you just kind of get that sense that oh, we're not going to beat Maidenhead. Um, it's a strange. But, but they're a classic team of every single team I've seen play against Maidenhead underestimate or are quite complacent and only and to be honest most of the time by right because I watched uh, I mean who's I watched this season Grimsby went there and Grimsby were flying at the time and I was like they're not that much you know although Maidenhead didn't have a lot they had enough on the pitch to get a, a result and it was a really flat Grimsby performance and it's not a, you know it's not a particularly enchanting place to go as a football fan or a player you know but good Good job to me. And Moss Rose was never particularly, people didn't like coming there, you know, and, and it, it, you know, it can get in the mind of players. Grimsby as well, it's always that, that old adage, you know, one likes going there on a Tuesday night and, you know, whenever. But it would generally be quite an intimidating place to come and, and you know, we would we would try and play that up. Yes. So sign in for Chesterfield then. So I think it was 40,000. 40, mm. um, I remember at the time back then, we hardly ever paid a transfer fee for anyone, I don't think. But I think Jamie Ward had gone to Sheffield United, I think, for like 350 grand or something. Um, so it was a strange one because you were like the replacement for Jamie Ward. Oh, that's, that's the worst thing you can be, a replacement for anyone, particularly a player that goes to a championship club and who's brilliant and who's, you know, scored a lot of goals. I, I, I kind of tried to lose any of those sort of monikers, even coming in, you know, as an equivalent for Fletcher or, you know, anyone who's had a in recent years at Chesterfield where after I'd signed was a recognisable striker it's the kind of pressure you don't need but I mean irrespective of that I was flattered to have any sort of fee I mean I would imagine between the two clubs there was some sort of discussion Keith Alexander was never a man to miss down doing a bit of uh, business he was you know he was he was always good at moving strikers and and I'd probably credit him with getting some of that money for for, uh, Macclesfield because I'd Probably in terms of my stock, I was I was coming off the back and maybe scoring six and five, so it's like I was as good as that was good value for him. Um, and you know, I, and I hit the ground running. I enjoyed coming in at Chesterfield and playing up front with Jack. I'd known Jack from played in a like a charity game at Grimsby with him, and obviously was a very big fan of uh, his playing ability and playing alongside him, and just kind of the strength of a character like that in the, in the changing rooms alongside Curry and. You know, um, where everyone, you know, uh, Rob Page at the time, big Kev Austin as well, and I knew Tom Lee and players like Paul Harsley. They were, you know, players that had pedigree and, and I'd, I'd been used to playing against them. So I was excited to line up alongside them. Who who did you end up like on the on the car share with? Yeah, so Tommy, we had a, we had a car school from Manchester going across. So it would have been Paul Harsley, Phil Picking when he came back, um, Danny Hall, Tommy Lee. And it was really nice, you know, there, it, was a, it was a nice way to share that journey because it's not a particularly enjoyable journey. I'd after, you know, getting that move, speaking to Lee Richardson, and Lee, and Lee was quite understanding about it. He was like, well, look, the other lads coming in from there, so I haven't really got a problem with it. Um, the problem is that, that is, that's not future-proof, that promise. So when uh, when Shares came in and was probably a little bit more disgruntled that a few, few too many players were coming a long way, which I understood because it's not it's not like you're sat in a motorway for an hour and a half. You're going across, you know, quite um, tough terrain. So if the weather's bad or something's up or, you know, you, you can't always guarantee that your players are going to be where you need them to be on time. So, and that was always an added uh, stress coming over from Manchester, which was, you know, a minor sort of hygiene factor, but in the, in the bigger scheme of things, little things like that can be annoying when you're not doing well. 
And what was the first impressions like for Chesterfield? Because obviously you've uh, been around a lot of kind of similar type clubs, really. Uh, yeah. We've had a lot of players. I've spoken to people like Phil Picken when they've come from like Manchester United. <laughs> and it's been a, or Alex Bailey and it was all a bit of a shock. But um, I suppose for you, it was kind of much of a muchness, was it? Yeah, I'd say the the biggest thing when you, I mean, it, it, it reminded me a lot of Plymouth. Plymouth had a similar, they're quite an old ground in the Mayflower stand and, and Saltergate reminded me of that. As much history was in that place. Uh, the pitch was always decent. There was never any bother with that, but I always felt like you were in a piece of history, you know, a proper old football ground. Um, I think the other thing with Chesterfield at the time, because it was a bit of a bit of a yo-yo club, you know, going up and down, or certainly in League Two were expected to challenge. So I always remember playing against them. And it could be frustrating for the home side if they weren't getting on top of you because, you know, as, as with all teams like that, it's the same at Plymouth. If, you, if you're expected to win and you're not and you've got a good crowd there, it can create a bit of tension. So um, when I came in, I think that, that was the biggest apprehension. I think the club you know, were keen to push on and at least secure playoffs. And when they didn't, you know, quite rightly, there was frustration. How did you find Lee Richardson then? Because I've had varying stories of, of players that played him. Some liked him, some really didn't. It's uh, it's it's a strange one. He's very much a Marmite manager, it seemed. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. I mean, my my experiences of him were, I I thought he was a really engaging guy. Really tried to tried to find things that he could help you with in your game, whether that was on the pitch, off the pitch. He talked to you about a lot of different things. Um, Again, he, he was a keen to motivate you uh, using whatever was any means necessary. And, uh, you know, um, I think that's evident in what he's gone on to achieve uh, post-Chesterfield. But um, I remember him, I, I can I can remember him being quite a flamboyant footballer. He was a guy that, he was a guy that you know, long-haired mid, midfielder for, for Blackburn, um, you know, and people said he was a great player. Didn't you know? Obviously, we didn't get to see much of that. There was Scott Sellers and guys like that would get a bit more hands on on the change on the on the training ground. But no, I, I, and Lee gave me the chance. He brought me in. You know, I can I won't criticise him for that. Um, I suppose the difficulty for me was just you know wishing I'd probably settled better. And if we'd have got in the playoffs that year and managed to do something, maybe you know um, you know my my kind of history at Chester would have been slightly slightly more fondly remembered or I'd achieved a little bit more on the pitch. But, um, but yeah, I suppose that, you know, if some, if some hands, pots and pans, you know. So your <laughs> debut, uh, you, you scored or didn't you score? I, I, I saw the, I, I watched the video of it yesterday and you'd kind of follow in a Lloyd Kerry shot, yeah. don't you? And kind of get it over the line, but kind of quickly put your hand up <laughs> to say, no, you can have it. <laughs> well, there's two, there's, it was one of those ones I was so keen to score. I was just like so eager to, to score. But also, I was half worried about being offside and then half worried about, um, then I was like, oh, straight away. Because I went up to Lloyd and I said to him, look, I tell you what, if you let me have the goal, I'll let you have the, the goal bonus. Because I said, for a striker to score on his debut means more to me than, and yeah. he was very, um, uh, he was very good about it. He was like, I oh, don't worry about it. It's not a problem. But, but I was very grateful to him for that. I remember it kind of, it kind of deflected and looped over. So it was just one of those ones. I was like, so it, just put it in the back of the net and have a discussion later on. Um, yeah, so, uh, and always uh, getting off to, uh, whether, no matter how the ball goes in the back of the net, if you get off to a goal scoring start, it gives you, just puts you in a different frame of mind. And it was two and two, I think, as well, wasn't it? 
still in your second game. The home, yeah, the one, the, the home one was a little bit better. That was a, um, yeah, got a little link up play, flick on Tommy, one two with Jack, and then you know put it in from the edge of the box, and that was a nice one to score in front of the sort of gate home home crowd and just get them on side a bit. They may be a mid-table side at the moment, but few clubs in the division have a better away record than Chesterfield. They picked up more points on the road than at home and took the lead at Chester when Laurie Wilson diverted the ball past his own goalkeeper. Chester were level early in the second half. Damien Mazika's well-placed header, his second goal of the season. But two goals in quick succession gave Chesterfield all three points. Jamie Winter restored the lead with 13 minutes left. And then Lloyd Kerry added the third. His shot took a big deflection and looped over goalkeeper John Danby. Martin Gritton made sure it had crossed the line, but seemed to accept it was Kerry's goal. What's it like coming in as the replacement for Jamie Ward halfway through a season? Because obviously you look at it, you don't get to do pre-season, you don't get to, you've got to kind of get to know the players in training and in bits of matches and stuff, and you've got... a quite a big expectation from fans as well because you're there to kind of replace a chunk of goals. I imagine the expectation and the pressure is something quite odd to handle, really. Well, the, it's funny, isn't it? The pressure, because I'd been scoring goals at that level at Macclesfield and the goals weren't, you know, they were coming They were coming to me and I was scoring all kinds of goals, you know, scoring headers, scrappy ones, ones that you know taking players on and beating them um, as, a, as the ones against Chesterfield showed. But um, I... I suppose then you're coming into a team where, I mean, it was, I think there was generally, there was a lack of confidence throughout the, the team at the time. Um, but you had players with individual brilliance. You had, you know, players like Daz Curry and, and Jack and, you know, buzzy midfielders like Lloyd that could chip him at a goal. And, you know, we had, you know, players all across the park that could do things. But I just think for whatever reason, um, you know, we weren't firing on all cylinders when I came in. And then, you know, Absolutely right. If I was, you know, if I was expecting me to do the same job that Jamie Ward was doing, then you know that that would be a frustration on my teammates and the fans, but probably a little bit of an unfair expectation as well. What's what's it like playing alongside Jack? Because obviously, uh, we've watched him from the stands and everything, and is is mm. got a good competitiveness to him. I think it's fair to say he's got like one. He's one of those players that just seems to need to win um, as part of his character. What's it like kind of playing alongside him 10 yards away? He, he, I look back at some of the goals I scored for Chesterfield and the amount that he set up, uh, just like little touches, death touches here, there, space that he created. He would play, I mean, I think he was probably playing way below below what he could play. I'm sure he could have been playing championship football, you know, now whether it, it was an age thing, an injury thing or a fitness thing, or just kind of him saying, you know, it, but it was an absolute privilege to have him at that level. And at Chesterfield, he seemed to, the game seemed to slow down a little bit when he had the ball at his feet. He always seemed to be able to find a way to either second guess the defender, twist him inside out or, you know, and as you said, through, through sheer force of will, put the ball in the back of the net and uh, and he always seemed to be you know have that attitude and that kind of bit between his teeth he was a hell of a competitor mm. um, and a great guy to have in the dressing room um, you know I, I think he had a great influence on a lot of the, the old pros uh, but also the young ones coming through and as a strike as the fellow striker do you always 
like when he gets the ball is do you have to concentrate a bit more get on your toes because you're just thinking right I need to get, need to get ready I just well, I think it's more a case of getting out of the way and giving the ball. He seemed to just get on with it, you know. Um, I'd say that the frustrating thing was that the last maybe he delivered so much in that season, the last eight games or whatever, when we needed when we needed goals from elsewhere, and they didn't come. And that's my role, you know. And that's that's his responsibility. The other striker, the other players in the team, and that's where you look at it and go, that's that's what cost us, and that's frustrating because that just leaves a bit of a bit of taste in the mouth, and and you look at it and say, well, can't can't wait for Jack to do everything for us, you know, and a little bit, a little bit of the team. I think they were so used to him being able to pull something out that sometimes when you put that expectation on a player, it's unfair. And also it's easier for the other team to manage. You know, if they shut, if they shut him down, they know that they're in with a chance. So, um, yeah, well, I think, you know, a few of us have to take the blame on our shoulders, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it cost a lot of us playing again, you know, the, in the following, in the following season and, and beyond. So, you know, the, the, I think that kind of, um, those sort of things redress themselves. Can I talk to you short, uh, a, a little bit about music? Yeah, of course. Because, um, I, I've kind of noticed on social media and everything, you've got a good taste in music. Uh, <laughs> and there's like, there's some other players around the squad that time, like Tommy Lee, people like that um, as well. I'm guessing they're kind of yeah. on your level with music and stuff like that. Um, did you ever get like control of the, of the music in the dressing room or anything like that? Do you know what? There was one place that I didn't really, you didn't really need to. We, we were, I think we did, I did suggest a few, but we had already in that dressing room, there was guys that were, the older pros were guys that I shared probably more in taste with. So again, like Jack, guys like Jack and Pagey and no one was going to tell them what to, what to you know, <laughs> or to take their iPods off it. So um, even Jamie went and those guys, they, they put on some cracking sort of indie bangers at the time. Uh, always remember that. Um, but yeah, Tommy Lee, uh, Paul Harsley had a great taste in music. Picks, Phil Picking, as mancuni as you can get, that lad, but um, and had this had music taste to match. And Danny Hall as well. So uh, it was nice. And obviously on a four-hour car round car journey a day, you, you get to cover a lot of music. Hmm. I'm, I'm probably putting you on a spot a bit, but is, are there any songs that remind you of your playing career? Uh, well, the, the one what was the one that always used to come on there was I think it was like Teddy Picker the, the Arctic Monkey song Teddy Picker was always one that was all in on the dressing room playlist from that when I was at Chesterfield I always remember that one I remember walking past there was a particularly crazy Mansfield team when I was playing for Torquay we always used to have ding-dongs against them mm. really good footballing team um, we played a game I remember walking past their dressing room and they, they had they had like the streets um, they had the streets, but it was one of the upbeat ones. Like, my God, don't you just know it? That one or something. I can't remember what it was called. But the the whole team were just jumping up and down in the dressing room together before the game. And it made you think you're like, this this is a squad that sticks together. And you know what? It's funny how those teams sometimes play together. I thought Lincoln were like that as well in that era. You know, the Keith Alexander era. There was a really tight team that played together and they had the same... Same sort of um, ethos. Those sort of things in dressing rooms when you see it can be quite ominous. And that man's who can, I think we, we drew two each with him that night, but we were clinging on for dear life. They were brilliant. So the manager changed at the end of your first season. But, I mean, that can't help as well when you're, uh, <laughs> when you're, no. you're trying to uh, find form and settle into a new club and stuff. But then John Sheridan came in and like you said, very different character to Lee Richardson. Yeah, it's about his, it's about his 
bad a thing that can happen as anything, especially if you've just been brought in to do a job and the job has not been done. Because yeah. um, it's quite, um, it's you know, it's quite obvious from the the players that he brought in, the way that he wanted to play. He was more of a kind of three up front guy, but you know, playing with players kind of coming in from um, wide. I was like, well, don't you know where I fit in here? But also, I was you know, have half a mind on it after just coming in. I was like, well, seeing players, John Sheridan again, my manager, that would probably get frustrated with players that weren't as good as him, you know. And I, you know, I can be as honest as, as I like about that because to, you see managers that come from a high level. He was a phenomenal player, you know, and he played with that sort of same tenacity and the same anger that he sort of talked about, uh, which is fine. But uh, players, you know, if the play, if you don't get the players going for you, I mean, to be honest, the team that he did build and the players that he did bring in were some of them were cracking strikers. So I didn't really have much to grumble on there I just ha- I was put in a difficult position to then try and work out what's best for my career you come in and fail somewhere which is essentially what you're looking at you go, well where do I go and the options for going out on loan or somewhere back to you know back to where I needed to be I was thinking well it's difficult especially at that end of your career so I find it really frustrating I worked my hardest to, to kind of impress him early on and to, to to get into his plans but it was pretty evident that you know, I needed to, to get back out and going down to Torquay was probably, you know, was a good option for me in terms of, you know, just, just getting away from it. But I think getting back to the levels I was at when I was, you know, in the, at the start when I joined and also when I'd come from Macclesfield, I think that that was the most depressing thing, not quite being able to do that. Is it is it difficult when you, I suppose you can feel like you've not really been given a chance when a new manager comes in, but like you say, if it's a system thing, then you're basically not fitting into like a philosophy rather than it being about your actual talent yeah. or ability. Does that kind of make it worse or kind of cushion the blow a little bit? What what made it worse was it probably wasn't as clean a break as it should have been. I was I, He put me in the resies and I was scoring, I think I scored a few hat-tricks in a, like three or four games, oh, not necessarily yeah. against great opposition, but I scored a lot of goals and he probably made it feel like it made him look bad. But, we played two up front in the resies. Didn't play three up front, or I was playing up front and more in the resies. So I was scoring the goals. Mark Crossley was, you know, he's like, well, you can't do any more. Um, I said, but you know, as long as I've, as long as I'm playing here, I'm not going to get in the first team. So it's, you know, with that mentality. And again, I'll go back to, you know, late twenties. Probably thought, you know, I, I deserve to be in the team. So I had a bit of an axe to grind with that. So um, yeah, there's frustrations and uh, not quite getting there. I mean, what I. You know, I suppose what I'd done at Macclesfield, I felt like I'd done it with Keith Alexander. I'd come through the mill, wasn't in his team, forced my way back in, scored the goals, got the move. So I'm like, well, I'd rather probably just either continued with the way that that was going and go in the summer. But, you know, that's not the way that it panned out. So going into a team and then not being able to build that momentum over another season, things just kind of, you know, fell apart on that front, um, playing consistently. But the, the main thing is as well, if, you, if you're playing for a team, and your mentality is right, and you're happy, and you're scoring goals, then good things come from that. But if you find yourself out of the team, you can be isolated pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just kind of felt like that a little bit. But again, you know, it's, it's the smallest violin in the world playing for me. I'm, not, I'm one of the thousands of footballers that were lucky enough to be playing at the time. So you have to then just get your, get your mind right and then go back out and prove it. But, I, you know, it just didn't quite happen for me. And, you know, I... I that's a frustration. Luckily, I didn't get injured, you know, and I, and I carried on playing for a bit. But yeah, it was, yeah, 
disappointing. Good to see the team go on and have success, though, because I still had a lot of friends in that dressing room. You talk about Tommy and those guys. Yeah. It, was, it was great to see them uh, lift the trophy, get promoted, you know, and, and do well. Yeah, because you were at Torquay then that season, weren't you? So you played the like last season at Saltergate season. I think that's you played right. about had about 10 appearances, something like that, was it? Yeah, that's and, right. And then it was out at Torquay, wasn't it, in the year that we won the title? It must be. It must yeah. be odd then when you're away on loan and you kind of. It is. It is. I think it's. It's funny. I you don't. I certainly didn't miss because the, the it was an intense season at Torquay as well because um, uh, Paul Buckle, who was a, was a great manager, but he was very like you're, you're drilled into what's going on there. So it was nice to be able to just focus on that. And to be honest, as I said, I've got absolutely no. Uh, no problem with the guys at, at Chester going on and having that success because they deserved it. And it shows you, you know, buying into what Shez wanted at the time and getting everyone. I'm, I'm sure he regrets it, Shez, because that was a, that's exact, that probably is perfect for him. The team playing he wants them to play, got the right personnel, uh, getting to bring players through, you know, and have the top brass at the club, you know, completely solely focused on what you want. And, um, those moments as a manager or a footballer are very, very rare. And you probably look back at them and say, but, you know, it feels so good it's not going to stop. It's the same as scoring when, you know, when you're not, when you aren't scoring, you feel like you're never going to score. When you're scoring goals, you feel like you're never going to miss. But having that little bit of success and you look back and say, can, we, can you ever recapture that? Well, you can't recapture exactly what it was, but you can try in other places. And I suppose, you know, that's what, that's what we're all looking for as, as professionals. Yeah, it's it's a sh- almost a shame that John Sheridan just didn't have that, didn't leave or get poached or something at the end of that title winning season because our experiences of John Sheridan since have not been very, very good. <laughs> it's a shame, isn't it? I mean, a few clubs are in the same boat, and I'm sure he's frustrated with the way that things panned out for him, you know. And it's, you know, we look back at it, and um, everyone could have done things differently. It's, it's just, you know, it's frustrating when you're under that pressure. You're absolutely right. Sometimes it's nice to just end it. We should, same thing for us at Torquay. We got promoted against all odds and then Leroy's given an, an impossible job the next season. You sometimes think if it, had, if, it had, if it had gone off at that point, it all would have been kind of picture perfect. Chesterfield boss Lee Richardson was named manager of the month for March and it started well for the Spyrites at Moss Rose. Former Macclesfield striker Martin Britton firing home after just eight minutes. Ironically, he scored twice for Mac against Chesterfield back in December. The lead didn't last for long. Seven minutes later, Gareth Evans equalised for the Silkman, who held on for a point. Yeah, then you did have a little bit of a, a spell, didn't you? Kind of uh, latter part of your career. So you were, I saw you at Chester, Yeovil, Stockport. Um, it's, it's interesting. There's lots of clubs that you've played for over your career that are the clubs that have kind of, I'm not saying it's your fault, that have kind of tumbled <laughs> tumbled down out of the league. Oh, yeah. So you've had Macclesfield that have kind of came and are having to rebuild again. Yeah. Torquay, Stockport, Yeovil, Chesterfield, you know, all kind of teams that, Grimsby, all kind of teams that have ended up in the National League in this whole kind of rearrangement of the structure with all these different clubs right. coming in. It must be... Must be strange now looking back at. It's strange when you look at those clubs and look at what the journeys that they've had to get there, and uh, yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, you know, you look at other clubs like Lincoln and Plymouth and see the success that they've gone on to have and being managed by the right people at the right time. How that's kind of worked out for them. 
you know, Ryan Lowe recently at Plymouth and mm-hmm. and um, uh, the brothers who were managing uh, Lincoln. It was just, you know, they were they were um, a superb, superb time for that club. And even now, you know, uh, the way that that club's going about its business in, in League One. But yeah, those teams in me, Stockport, I went to Stockport. I was living in Manchester at the time. That was a really difficult time for them because they were just on a kind of non stop slide yeah. and that was just when they'd been relegated but also they'd been taken over um, we'd literally got signed by Ray Matthias and then the next day a consortium took over the club and he got sacked so I, I just joined the club and then and then he gets he gets fired and then they bring in Diddy a man and Diddy was like well I'm going to play kids and I'm like I just signed yesterday I literally signed yesterday and signed a year contract and I live five minutes away I'm saying I'm not walking away but I said, I don't quite know where we go from here. And, you know, what happened that season was just a, a lesson in how a football club shouldn't be run. And, you know, those guys went left, left and left it in a worse state than they came. And, you know, it was just for Jim Gannon to pick up the pieces again at that place. And, you know, good, good job that he did because he had the club's best interest at heart. But I tell you what, that's just, yeah, sad when you're at a club and you see that, you know, See, I happened to Plymouth when I'd left Plymouth, you know, when they go into that uh, administration after being the championship. I mean, that's a hell of a way to fall. You know, when you work, you know how hard it is to get out of leagues. It's so easy to go back down them, isn't it? It's so easy just to kind of fall back into something and wish what you had before. Yeah, and, and having had a long career in at different clubs, if you had a model of how you think clubs should be run... <laughs> What are some of the basics that you think? Because it's odd seeing all these teams slide. Obviously, a lot of the time, a lot of teams that fall out of the league, it's because of bad owners. Uh, Not necessarily bad teams. Sometimes it's just the way the club is run that just tumbles it down the leagues. At some point, there has to be a a way in in, in which to solve this in some way. There's there's a fine balance. If you find... I would look at clubs like... uh, Maybe Grimsby is a good example now. When you get local guys come in with fresh ideas that they want to involve the fans in um, and they want to get people behind the club and do the basics right, just be fair to the fans and give the team the best possible opportunities, whether that's through funding, even just things like get your training going right, get your kit right, get all the, you know, get get the club set up in as best a place as you can, bring in the right sort of manager with the right vision. But these are all individual pieces that are, you know, it takes a long time and a lot of experience to get. The saddest thing you feel is when you're joining a club like, say, Macclesfield or Grimsby when I was there, and they've cannibalised the community for all the goodwill over 20, 30 years. So you've got you've asked all local businesses to put in money, and you're like, well, they're not going to do it again. They're not going to be fooled again. And you, you ask people to sacrifice, make sacrifices that you never redress or reward, or you, I don't know, you have success and you don't share it with everyone properly and it's you look at those things and those are those are things that you think are quite simple to maybe implement or certainly certainly should be one of your first mission statements but um i think clubs don't always get that right um yeah. uh, it's and it's looking at it as a community a, a football club should be looked at as like a, a community asset rather than a business um you know and there's money to be made and there's jobs to be had but you know, I think if you first and foremost try and think what is best for this community, you'll be surprised that you know how well people will get behind the football club. Um, you went into uh, kind of broadcasting, so um, 
I suppose the Chesterfield squad around your time, it was like a almost could have been Fleet Street. We had like Gregor Robertson there. Uh, Tommy Lee, I think, did the did the course as well, didn't he? Downsy, yeah. And uh, yeah, and Downsy. So there was, there was quite a few of you, wasn't there? So one of the great things that PFA did was um, you know, start that partnership with Staffordshire Uni to, to provide that course. Being part, being close in the Midlands, um, you know, it was it was an accessible one for us. Um, and it was, to be honest, it was a brilliant platform for a lot of us. And I, you know, I've used it in a kind of, I still would say that it's it's not my, um, I'm, so, I'm so glad I did it because it gave me that experience. But, you know, professional writing and broadcasting isn't my, you know, that's not my food and drink. That's, you know, it's almost still a hobby, but it gave me great experience and great um, lesson in how to do it. And if you look at the way, like, kind of downsy, uh, when he's however has interviews now, or the way that he holds himself, same as Tommy Lee. Tommy Lee went on to write really well. Sam McGregor, great writers. I just think that um, it was a brilliant thing for players to be able to show their kind of creativity, learn new skills, um, and yeah, interesting that that dressing room was you know particularly productive. But it was it was it was a good dressing room full of good characters. So yeah, doesn't surprise me. I, I hope the course is still uh, uh, going from strength to strength because it was doing well at the time. Uh, was there a fight over who got like the column in the Derbyshire Times? Because I imagine we all get to have to do placements and stuff like that as part of it. We all moved it. It was funny because we all kind of, I think we all passed on at different times. So yeah, definitely. Tommy, I think Tommy and um, Art Downs had good relationships with club media guys that probably helped that at the time I was on my way. So, you know, I think I did some bits and bobs with the non-league paper. Um, and then, you know, subsequently we've done a lot of the, you know, uh, BBC Humberside and BBC Devon coverage of games, which has been great fun because there's a big catchment, a lot of games, a lot of games around London. So that's where I live at the minute. So it's been um, good to be able to do them. Which is, so which do, which league do you think is the best to watch at the moment? Oh, do you know what? Um, to watch, well, I, I the interesting thing is when I watch, I mean, the National League is the, com- the competitiveness of it, but I mean, I will say that the standards of some of the players in League One uh, when I've been watching Plymouth just been phenomenal because they've had such a good season. Um, I've got to see the best of it. Um, I'd say that um, the frustration for me last year, because I, 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 I followed so many games of theirs and then when they lost that in the playoffs and that was like, it was like watching two boxers just slugging it out in the 12th round. You know, Hartlepool and them were exhausted. The goalkeeper scores in the 97th was an emotional just roller coaster, and at the end of it, you were like, "How does the losing team pick themselves up?" And then half that Torquay team got gutted. So I had to watch Torquay go to teams like Solihull, who we know are a good side, but last season I'd say Torquay were probably a better team than them, and get absolutely pummeled by them. And you're just thinking, "This is this is brutal to watch." So um, yeah, I, I think I've got a bit of a love hate relationship with the National League this year, um, but that doesn't mean to say it's not competitive because seen some hell of a good uh, performances in in that league and you know you guys are still well in with the shot this season well let's hope so who who would your money be on then for who's gonna win the I, league uh, being a wise man and not gambling i wouldn't put my money on anyone but i'd certainly be very wary of uh, boreham wood and uh, bromley just because they're that's the they're, they're teams that are like one win away from uh, being uh, right behind you and also they're the sort of teams that you you just when I've seen them, 
you know, especially Bromley playing on a, on a on a pitch, the same way that Sutton did it last year. And you know, teams can all play on that. Every one of these teams play trains on a four G pitch. But just seeing teams that are very well drilled and operate brilliantly on those sort of surfaces, always, it's always ominous uh, for teams that go there. And I've seen them take some of the best teams in the league apart this season. So uh, yeah, let's see let's see where they end up. But yeah, I'd be more than happy if, if uh, Chesterfield did it this year. Let's hope so. But oh, I mean, all hail the underdog. Chesterfield have been the underdog for years when we were in League One and stuff. And it's kind of nice seeing the underdog doing well. I think if the top was just us and Wrexham and Stockport and everyone else, it's kind of nice to see teams like Bromley and Boreham uh up there. Yeah, absolutely. Same as, you know, the way that Sutton, I mean, so that's quite a dilapidated ground Sutton had, but, you know, these clubs that relying on, you know, that little bit of success. And, um, you know, and they've gone on to do well this season as well. So not bad at all. So we've come to the end. Right. So what's your what's your presiding memories of Chesterfield then? Is it more about the the people of, that you met and, and stuff like that? Yeah, I'd say that um, the dressing room, really uh, fascinating dressing room full of brilliant old pros, but also loads of young players that have bags of talent coming through. Um, you know, growing up in the southwest and playing alongside Jamie Lowry, so sad seeing his um the injury that he had, but you know, great personnel in the in the in the dressing room. You know, bittersweet memory of of not being able to do enough on the pitch to keep Lee Richardson in a job, and certainly not you know perhaps gracate the fans towards me more. You know, it was uh, that's the nature of football at that level. But um, but yeah, I you know, uh, just another brilliant chapter in in a, in a career, or certainly a, a, a brilliant memory uh, of a club that um, I was at throughout my career. And, and final, final thing. Uh, what did you get from Linda's sandwich shop? Oh, um, I'm, well, usually I'd find myself not in the squad, so I'd go down and get a breakfast bap. I mean, and that was a winner, you know. But it was the, it was it was not being able to get the smell of the, the, the fry up out of my tracksuit. So the manager had probably found out that I was um, that I'd been down there before the game. But uh, so any way that I could get a sandwich without having to actually go in there would probably be best. I'm sure Linda could make some good money out of uh, passing on information to the management. Sure. Well, don't say that. Now I, now I know what the reason was. I can always blame that, can't I, Dave? 